0: Yes. And move on to the okay. next session, uh, very important session with uh, uh, many celebrities uh, of uh, ecolo- environmentalist activity and also celebrities of uh, ecological philosophy. There are, we have three philosophers, uh, Professor Vishwa Professor jaideep Deepakchi, Professor uh, Edward P. Butler, all three from the United States. And we have two very important activists, Viva Kirmani and Rahul Goswami Ji, uh, for this session. We'll start with Viva Kirmani the activist from India. The inherent ecology of Hinduism is our topic. I just want to say a, a, a point about uh, Viva Ji and uh, Rahul Ji. Uh, we are uh, in the process of. Uh, 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 establishing a Center for uh, Indigenous Sustainability. And uh, Viva Kermaniji and Rahul Goswami will be advisors to this center. And this center will focus on about 120 districts in India uh, as the first phase of the project, looking at uh, uh, three areas, agriculture, uh, Ayurveda, and craft. In, uh, so we, the first phase would be that we will be sending out volunteers to these districts to understand the local practices in these three areas. So it's uh, indeed a great uh, honor for me to announce this uh, in this conference uh, of the establishment of this center. And I'm really, really grateful to Viva uh, Ji and Rahul Ji who have uh, you know, outlined this whole project. So Viva Ji, welcome. Rahul Ji, welcome.
1: Thank you very much uh, Hari uh, Namaste to all. Is there a facility in for clapping?
0: Uh, for, for getting claps from all the audience? I don't think. Okay, please, ma'am. Please proceed.
1: So, um, Pranams to all, to all my co-panelists, to my host, to Indic Academy, to Hari Karanji, to all the uh, attendees, I think um, I understand that Indic Academy tried to have this conference uh, twice before, but for some unforeseen reasons, they were not able to do that. And we're having it today. But I think having it today at this time during the lockdown is uh, very significant because I think this period of lockdown has come at a time when we're living in a less globalised world. We're living at a time where we are more local where uh, our footprint is actually much lower right now. And we have actually moved away from this manic, insane world that we were living in. So for me, I think this conference on indigenous environmentalism has come really at a very, very opportune time. Because right now there is a global pause. And I hope that we will all be able to use this time to really think as to what is the kind of life that we want and what is the kind of development that we want. We've heard from the last two or three days. I mean, we've, we've heard from, I think, yesterday and this morning from great scholars about the deep relationship that we have had all along with nature. And originally, I did think that I would speak about that. But I think we've heard some fantastic voices. We've heard Nandita Krishna, who spoken wonderfully about the deep roots of uh, ecology and uh, Hinduism. We've heard from uh, Dr. Pankar Jain, we've heard from Michelle Daninos, we've heard from some fantastic scholars. So I will not dwell too much about the roots of Hinduism with ecology, but I will definitely refer to that a little bit because if you take nature out of Hinduism, there's not much left. So I think that Nature is such a part of Hinduism that they go very, very closely together. So I will touch upon that a little bit. But I would also like to share my journey with you as an environmentalist, not so much as a scholar or as a savior, as this conference is titled, but more as an individual who has chosen to tread this path as an environmentalist and working in the areas of sustainability. Um, So my interest has always been there, but I started uh, looking at it More seriously, I would say about 18, 20 years ago when I could see and I could sense that there was this terrible, terrible ecological and environmental degradation uh, happening. Uh, Climate change was upon us and I just felt that there was really not much awareness and not much was happening. So I really decided to take some time off and to study and I went back to school to try to study uh, environmentalism ecology, climate change, development, to see really what is going on, and could I understand it better from an academic view? But much to my surprise, on the very first day of ecology, one of the first things that was told was that ecology as a science is relatively new. The term ecology was only first defined in 1866 by Ernst Heckel, And among the scientists, it suddenly became quite sought after because of some of the effects of pollution that we started to see in the early 20th century. So once I heard this, I was a bit taken aback because from what I understood and what little I knew at that time on Hinduism and uh, my understanding of the Vedas was that there's no other faith or no other religion that pays as much attention to environment and environmental ethics. Uh, As Hinduism. In fact, Hinduism is inherently an ecological relationship, uh, uh, ecological uh, religion, which has a very, very strong code of how nature and all its creatures are to be protected. In fact, I think we've heard this a lot. So I'm not going to spend too much time on this. I think Nandita Krishnanji has spent a lot of time yesterday Uh, showcasing that Hinduism is really the world's largest nature-based religion and recognizes and seeks that there is divine in everything. And we have acknowledged this always. Uh, The very concept of nature as being sacred has been established in the Vedas thousands and thousands of years ago. And um, it's sometimes... I ask myself, what is it that has changed, that has actually caused so much of environmental degradation? We seem to know all of these things. We have have these lofty concepts about how nature is to be treated, how ecology has been understood how every animal, every creature has some amount of divinity, but somewhere we have actually lost this. In fact, way before activism actually started, way before the emergence of organizations like Greenpeace or World Environment Day started happening, I think our uh, Shrutis, our Smritis, all instructed us that animals and plants found in the land of Bharat Barsha are sacred. That like humans, our fellow creatures, including plants, have consciousness and therefore all aspects of nature are to be revered. So we've had ample evidence of this. We've had ample evidence that nature is sacred and that it's very important to find the balance between the two. And I think this is something which really sets us apart from the other faiths. And this is something which is very different that Hinduism says and believes in from the Judeish and the uh, Abrahamic and, and the Christian view. But why is it that the Western view of ecology doesn't really tell us this because my experience in studying uh, uh, ecology was that there was this lens was not really uh, explained, there was not too much focus on it. And while there's no formal environmental movement in India as much as defined by the West, in India, except in recent times, we had the Chipko movement. And we don't have any category in uh, Hindu tradition called environmentalism because it was always a part of our dharma. Uh, and Hinduism has always taught us to worship earth as a divine mother. In fact, a very conspicuous aspect of Hindu culture is the strong love and relationship and respect for nature that we have. And we honor earth as the mother, as goddess, as Deva. And this is what we have heard right through the last one and a half days. And every part of nature is to be worshipped, whether it's the rivers or it is the streams or it is our trees, our mountains, our snow peaks, plants, animals, birds, insects, every kind of flora and fauna has some amount of divinity in it. And this is really, really very different from the Western concept. In fact, the Abrahamic faith in their scriptures, like the Old Testament, for example, they say it is man that is the supreme being it is man who actually rules over the other creatures and it is man who actually needs to conquer uh, nature and i think that their view of nature is limited in that you need to take care of nature but there is no divinity in that and i think that is really what sets us apart so this view that the western world has of nature is in complete contrast to the kind of view that we have to the kind of approach that we have and i think that thousands and thousands of years ago hinduism understood the invaluable role that trees played to the, uh, in everyday services and everyday ecosystem services like purifying the air, like the hydrological services, like a provider of food, of material, of climate, of rain and soil. In fact, Nandita ji also said to us yesterday that they at that time knew why the people tree was so important. Why was it that there was so much of people tree around? Because they knew at that time that the people tree gave oxygen 24 hours. So while we had this knowledge... While we have this deep understanding and love and respect for all things in nature, and we saw the divine in them, what actually changed then for us? I ask myself this time and time again what went wrong? What changed? How did it change? When did it change? And uh, while I don't want to uh, really pinpoint or blame the past. But I think that there has been a very crucial watershed in the history of the Indian forestry. And that was the entrance of the colonial powers. Because when the British came to India, the way forests were treated changed, and it changed forever. The British British massacred the forest and believed that the Indian forests were inexhaustible. They Needed the forest, they needed the timber, they needed the forest produce to expand the railways for the export of all the goods that they were manufacturing here. And for the first time in India ever in the year 1864, something called the Indian Forest Department started. And very, very quickly uh, and very hurriedly, a new legislation was passed to actually strengthen the state's control over the forest. And a lot of regulation was passed, and for the first time, the customary rights that some of the tribals had just vanished. There were a lot of protests during that time, and this is an area where I find that the historians have not focused on this. We don't know much about the kind of protests that erupted right across India, but there were very, very strong objections to this right across. But all the objections were disregarded, and in 1878, a new bill was passed, and this was made into law. And sadly, while I don't want to blame the British for this, what is really sad is even today, It is this law, it is this colonial law that is in existence. There has been some amount of change. There has been few amendments here and there. The Indian Forest Act of 1927 is still largely based on how the British view forests and how the forests were to be treated, which was in complete, complete contrast to how we have been treating our forests and wildlife and nature for the longest time. So it was suddenly under colonial rule for the first time, our forests became what I call market worthy. They suddenly had some value and that really changed and that sadly still exists today. And I think that when that came in and today we have left behind that ethos that we have, that forests are to be protected, the trees are to be worshipped and that went when this act came into power, which is still there. And I think even yesterday we said we can blame the the education system, we can put the blame on on what the British did, but little effort has been done to actually change it. In fact, when this law came in and when there were protests right across the country, um, there's one quotation that I would like to share with all of you, and that is, which is from one of the UP state archives. And I'm going to quote this peasant who said, The forests have belonged to us from time immemorial. Our ancestors planted them and have protected them. Now they have become of value. Government steps in and robs us of them. And I think this is something sadly still continues. Not much of this has changed. And I think that if we really want to protect our forests, if we are really concerned, I think we need to follow the code that was given to us thousands and thousands of years ago and not follow the colo- the code that was set in by the colonial rulers because we know and we have been taught, and there's this beautiful quotation which says, so long as earth is able to maintain the mountains, the forests, the trees, until then the human race and its progeny will be able to survive. In fact, yesterday, Michelle G also said that there are a lot of indic traditions where we see a number of rituals in which mountains rivers uh, are worshipped are prayed uh, the source of all divinity but yet there is so much pollution uh, in them and what is it that has made us come to this and I think we can ask ourselves this many, many times. And I think that if we really go back to our faith, if we go back and look at it as Dharma, if you look at Dharma as nature, I think we will find uh, some of the answers there. So I'm just going to digress a little bit from that. And I would just like to share maybe two or three of my experiences that I've had, you know, working on the ground, working with different communities where they have actually chosen a dharmic view or a more benign view, uh, a view or an action to protect nature over maybe more materialistic gains. So, if I may, I will just share some of my experiences with you working as an environmentalist or as an activist, as Hari Kananji likes to call me. So, uh, I will just step back and go back to, I think it was in the year uh, 2010 11 when I was working with a nonprofit uh, in Bangalore and uh, I was approached by a group of small farmers who uh, lived in the Western Ghats. They were called the, uh, they were a group of about 30 to 40,000 small farmers. They called themselves the K- uh, KGF, the Karnataka Growers Federation. Uh, they were growing coffee al- along with uh, other crops. And uh, they actually came to me, and they said that they were looking for some sort of help, some sort of guidance, because they noticed that there were changes in the weather, in the weather patterns. They started to notice that it rained when it was not supposed to rain. When they were expecting rain, it didn't rain. Uh, there was rising temperatures, and they felt that there was some amount of disturbance to the in, in the entire uh, ecosystem. Uh, in fact, I met one of a, uh, a farmer and who had a who showed me a little notebook which was really falling uh, apart. And uh, he said that in his family they had been documenting rainfall for the last 60 or 65 years. They had also been recording temperature, and what they found is that always in the Western Ghats where where they lived and where they cultivated, the temperature was always between 18 degrees and 28 degrees. But over the last couple of years, they found that the temperatures actually were beginning to start at about 28 degrees. So this group of farmers were very concerned. They were concerned about their livelihood and they were really concerned as, as what is the future of them, especially because coffee was a key crop for some of them. Um, so I decided to go ahead and, and to work with them, and uh, I think one, I think more than them gain, gaining from us and the work that we did for this, it was what I actually gained from them and what I learned about the importance of diversity in the cultivation of a crop on the hills of the Western Ghats. And one of the studies that we did was what was the effect of climate change on uh, agriculture. Here, uh, it was coffee, but it could really be uh, any other crop. In this particular study that we did, the coffee was the crop that was in focus. And what makes Indian coffee very, very different from the way coffee is grown elsewhere is that coffee is grown under shade. In India today, uh, most of the coffee is shade grown coffee. And because of that, there is a lot of plant biodiversity and uh, this is something which is very, very unique. So while we don't have, we don't say our coffee is all organic, I think naturally it is quite organic because it is really grown under fantastic conditions, under great biodiversity in an area that is really, really, very pure. And in the absence of the states categorically protecting not only the Western Guards along the entire length fully and in their foothills, this was really a way for us to support local residents to do the same to kind of prevent also plantation economics from coming in. Uh, Very often um, cash crops like tea or coffee sometimes are seen as being plantation crops and monoculture. But I just want to clarify that in India, in coffee especially, 98.8% of the people who grow coffee are small farmers. It is not a a plantation crop, uh, unlike tea. It is really small farmers and most of their holdings are less than 10 acres. So this group of farmers that I worked with, all of them had 10 uh, acres or less. Some of them had as less as, as 30 plants. That's all that they had. But along with their coffee, they were growing uh, other crops. Some of them were even doing a little bit of paddy of cultivation. Of course, they were growing pepper. They were growing coconut. So it was really um, multi-cropping. Uh, so while I say that that this is coffee, this can also be applied to Ayurvedic plants because they are far far more natural to the hills. So when we did this study, uh, what we found is that, uh, realistically speaking, uh, because of the weather patterns, uh, things were going to be very difficult for the farmers. in fact, they actually came back to us and they said, do you think that there is a future of coffee? Do you think that we can continue? And I spent about two to three years there. And I think by the end of it, we had to say the future is bleak uh, with climate change upon us. It may not be as uh, easy uh, as it was. And in fact, I'll just show you. so we came out with this book. I don't know if you can see this recommendation. It was called uh, Coffee to Go. Uh, where we studied uh, coffee farms very, very closely. We studied the, the biodiversity. We studied the, uh, the ecosystem because a lot of the small farmers coexisted with wildlife. A lot of the coffee plantation, the small holdings were at the uh, edge of the forest. And uh, after having a lot of sabhas with the farmers, they all said that we would like to continue this because this is our dharti, this is our land. We do not want to give this up. This is our dharma to continue. We have inherited this land. We are the custodians. We have nurtured this. We have taken care of this. This is something that we want to do. So I think this is really an example of how a group of people, how a community chose to continue this because they saw that this is something which was divine. This is something which has sustained them. This is something which has nurtured them. And I would just like to end with the, of this particular with the summary that we gave and the summary said, biodiversity has been and continues to be an important part of coffee agroforestry systems. It has the potential to provide multiple products and services, facilitate organic production, and support the development of livelihoods and ecotourism enterprises. Maintaining and integrating trees and wildlife on coffee farms is recommended to maintain and enhance the sustainability of coffee production and the flow of benefits to the surrounding environment and society at large. And I'm very grateful to the coffee farmers for accepting this recommendation. And in spite of all the challenges, in spite of all the pressure, especially from businesses that actually want to take over some of this land and convert it into resorts, uh, they have continued to do this. So I think this is something which to me was uh, inspiring and which allowed me to continue the work and say, if you are sustainable, if you continue to protect your biodiversity, you will always gain because it is when you look after nature that nature really protects you. So this project ended in about 2013-14. And since then, uh, we have actually helped some of these coffee farmers to uh, uh, to find better market linkages. Some of them have gone in for uh, certification, whether it is fair trade or it is the Rainforest Alliances. And we have really tried to get some of the buyers to see that in this coffee that they are drinking, they are actually, by, by by supporting these farmers, they are supporting great biodiversity. They are supporting the ecosystem. Because if you see today, a lot of the main rivers of Karnataka, some of them actually originate in this coffee land. And if we had to give up some of this, there would be no water coming to the city of 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 Bangalore. So I think that some of this agriculture, which is sustainable, needs to be supported. And we need to be more aware of the kind of relationship that some of our ancient knowledge has. Uh, After this, I just want to go back and uh, share uh, another project that I did, which uh, is very, very close to my heart. It was a project that I did in Kerala, uh, it was a huge challenge because we were up against uh, a big airport. Um, it was uh, I actually uh, entered, I would say, uh, in the middle of, uh, of this project. So uh, this project that I did was in a place called Aranmula in Kerala, which is in uh, central Kerala. Uh, Aranmula is a very, very special place. It's a heritage village and it's really famous for the, the boat race. I think most of you all must be familiar with the boat races that take place in Kerala. And this particular village called Aranmula has one of the oldest river boat races. Uh, so these boat races are normally held at the time of the Onam festival. And uh, the river is along this beautiful 1,800-year-old Parthasarthi temple. Parthasarthi or the the Shri Krishna temple is one of Kerala's most important uh, temples. And there is this tradition where the Kerala boats are used during the race, and these boats are all handcrafted. And uh, every boat comprises of about 150 men, four of which are helmsmen. There are 25 men who are the singers, and there are 125 actual oarsmen who actually and this entire team works together because if there is any any uh, disturbance in this team, I think that there is a risk that this boat may has because there's a lot of singing, there's a lot of clapping, there's a lot of chanting that goes on during the streets. I think this is also symbolic of the need that you have to maintain harmony and you have to live with nature. So uh, Aranmula was famous for this boat race, and it was also famous for this this, this uh, ancient temple. Uh, this was also quite close to Shabri Mala, so very often after visiting Shabri there would be some pilgrims who would come to uh, Aranmula. Uh, Aranmula was also famous for the Kerala, what we call the Kerala Kanari or the Kerala Mira. In fact, the the craftsmanship is very unique because this is the only place where The mirror is made out of metal and this is also used, I think, during the Vedic time and the craft of making metal mirrors is a combination of copper and white lead in a particular proportion. And this knowledge is kept with very, very few families and it is still maintained. I think there are about 30 families who actually have this knowledge of making this mirror using this particular combination of of alloy and this knowledge has been passed down by generation but there are still families who do it and this knowledge is still not shared so uh, aranmula has these uh, crafts and, and this tradition and there is also the fantastic tradition of uh, paddy cultivation and the entire area is green it's it's lush it has uh, what they call the uh, the aranmula pancha uh, or the paddy field and uh, the temple really is, is the hub of a lot of the activity. And uh, the entire area has some amount of uh, spiritual connection with nature. And they've always tried to preserve some of these ancient practices. So come, I think, 2011-12, the uh, government of Kerala decided that they wanted to have an airport in Aranmula, And I think for the local residents, this was like being stabbed because this was something that they did not want. This was something they did not bargain for. And they felt that everything is going to change for them. And uh, Mm -hmm. it was an area which also had a lot of sacred groves. And uh, when they saw the plan of the airport, the the plan was that the runway would be very, very close to the temple, which meant that the temple mass, which was almost 30 meters, had to be lowered. Uh, So they figured that that this is going to uh, spoil or it would come in the way of, of, uh, of their practice. I think they had earmarked almost 700 or 1500 acres of paddy field to be acquired. They wanted the, uh, the runway to be built on the wetlands. They were going to take away some of the sacred groves. So a lot of the uh, local residents uh, decided to oppose this airport. So uh, they they started some protests, there were a lot of uh, agitations and uh, in fact I was in, in Bangalore at this time and I just happened to read about this and I it, it actually caught my eye because having an env- a background in you know in environment and environmental uh, assessment I was keen as to how did this project actually get approval. So I got in touch with the group that was uh, protesting and I I actually then went there and I spent a lot of time there. made many trips and we worked together. And uh, of course, then it, it went to uh, court. They filed the case. It went to the, the National Green Tribunal. And finally, after about two to three years, and after some fantastic lo- local leadership by Kumunanji, uh, the state government, there were a lot of flip-flops. The airport actually got canceled. And I think this was a tremendous win for a very local green movement and i remember my first trip when i went there and i was staying uh, in the guest house and i was talking to the lady who was running the, the guest house sujata and uh, sujata said you know viva ji um i'm also opposed to the airport and uh my my children are saying amma why are you opposing it because if there is this uh, airport it'll be good for you there'll be more tourists will come Uh, you know, the the, the guest house is going to get more, will get much more business. And she said, no, I said, I cannot do this because this is against what we believe in because we have sacred groves. Our rice is very special because it is this very rice that is given as offering to the deity. We cannot have any of this. So I think this really uh, made me think that if you do something which is dharmic, you will win. I think when dharma is on your side, I think in the end, right decisions are made. So when this project was was over, um, and when we decided that we will, you know, disband in this group, and we all went back to our respective places, I would often think that, you know, did we do the right decision? You know, was it actually right? You know, maybe this airport might have helped, maybe, you know, uh, there would have been, jobs there would have been some more amount of uh, economic uh, activity so once in a while I, I i would actually have this thought but i think in 2018 when the floods came i got a call from someone who i worked with and they said thank god we didn't have the airport because if we had the airport all our wetlands would have gone and we would have had flooding even more than what we have now So I think there was that innate wisdom that said these wetlands had to be protected, our sacred groves had to be protected, our river had to be protected, our deity had to be protected, our crafts had to be protected. So I think that this was this innate knowledge which sometimes we need to tap into. I think every decision cannot be uh, economic. I think there are some decisions where you have to look at what is the impact on environment? What is the impact on ecology? What is the uh, impact on people? There is a lot of talk about what we call the triple bottom line today. They say about people, planet and profit. Whatever you do, think of what is the impact that it has on the triple bottom line. But today we've even moved away from that. We say not profit, we talk about prosperity. So whatever you do, my submission is that whatever project we work on, I say what is the impact on people on the planet and on the prosperity of the community at large so I think that you know with this I would like to really come to an end to my very very short uh, talk on some of my experiences because in spite of uh, the degradation that we're we're seeing in spite of some of uh, the wrong decisions I feel that are being taken and the the whole focus on Vikas or development at any cost, there is hope. And I think that we have heard some of this. We've heard wonderful stories from uh, Tarun Jabra on the fantastic practices of the Todas. We heard from Divya about what are some of these beautiful practices. I think we really need to go back to some of them because we we have it, we have some of these answers. And I think some of my work has shown that a lot of these concepts that we've heard or that we've been talking for the last one and a half days, they are not just remote concepts. I think they are actual practices that we can do. And these practices, if we do, will not just protect the environment, will not just protect the forest or the trees, but they will also protect and nurture us. They will nurture the community, that lives in them and occupies them. Because about a thousand years ago or 5,000 years ago, the code was set for us. We were told how we could live, how we could live a life that is sustainable, that is very kind to Mother Earth, to nature, to all our creatures. I think the time is here for us just to embrace it because the answers were given to us many, many thousand, many millennials ago. And with that, I would like to say pranam and thank you once again for giving us this opportunity. And Going back and thinking of the wonderful, wonderful country that we have that is so blessed with wonderful forests, animals, trees, nature, plants, whatever we want we have. We just need to look after it and it will look after us. Thank
0: you. Thank you very much, ma'am.